0: Okay, come on back. So, I'd like to move through a chunk of material that's a little conceptual just to kind of, you know, sort of establish it to preserve time for practice. I've done a lot of. rock climbing and wilderness-type things. And one thing I've learned is that if you don't make a strong start in the morning, you're going to suffer in the evening. So <laughs> trying to make sure we can you know, do that. And um, I have a lot more about these topics on my website, freely offered, Rick Hansen, So you can check out more stuff if that interests you. So first, a kind of a framework here, um, the natural mind. To make a point that may be obvious already, apart from hypothetical possible supernatural or transcendental factors, what we're left with is what scientists refer to as the natural frame, the frame of natural causes and natural phenomena, including wild stuff like quarks and E equals MC squared and the Big Bang and dark energy and all the rest of that. But basically these are seen as natural processes. In other words, apart from whatever might be um, transcendental or supernatural, the mind, including what we think, what we feel, hear, see, taste, touch and smell, hope, dream, enjoy and suffer, is rooted in underlying material, physical, biological, neurological, natural processes. In a fundamental sense, seeing, hearing, and all the rest of that is grounded in life. That doesn't mean that there isn't a supernatural or a transcendental. You know, personally, I think there is. But that said, for our purposes here, I'm going to stay inside the natural frame. In that context, then, mental activity must entail underlying neural activity. The details of that are still being worked out. Uh, Neuroscience is a baby science compared to other sciences like chemistry, say, or astronomy, certainly. But still, the basic notion inside the natural frame is that hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, and smelling, thinking, remembering, desiring, uh, longing, uh, wholesome desire, unwholesome desire, all the rest of that must involve some kind of underlying pattern of neural activity that enables it. In other words, the mind arises dependently, including dependently upon some kind of underlying natural processes. Repeated patterns of mental activity, therefore, repeated thoughts, repeated feelings, repeated desires, entail repeated patterns of underlying neural activity. And then here's the takeaway point. This speaks to how the brain learns, for better or worse. Repeated patterns of neural activity change neural structure and function. As I quoted uh, the saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, previously, neurons that fire together, wire together. This means that, in principle, what we experience, for better or worse, worse, is gradually changing our brain. Now, it's important to appreciate that if we are feeling pain, worry, anger, upset, loss, heartache, whatever, in a space of awareness, spacious, witnessing, interested, self-compassionate awareness, the pairing of the two, in other words, the holding of the pain in a larger space of untroubled awareness, since neurons that fire together, wire together, associates the peacefulness. Because awareness itself is never disturbed by what passes through it. Awareness, in a sense, to use a metaphor, is like a TV screen. All kinds of stuff can move across that TV screen. I tell my wife, you know, honey, if I get old and start dementing, just put the TV on 24-7, the Serenity Channel. You know, and whatever's going across that. On the other hand, some people's minds, you know, honestly, it's more like... I don't know what the horror show channel, but anyway, but whatever crosses the mind, you know, crosses the TV screen, doesn't change the screen itself, right? The representing capacity of mind, uh, including representing to itself, which is kind of the root of awareness, um, is itself not damaged by what by what it represents. So, when you pair uh, spacious awareness with painful, difficult, challenging contents, it doesn't that interrupts the ways in which those painful, difficult contents are changing the structure of their brain. That's really an important point. That's one of the uh, reasons why training in mindfulness is so powerful and useful. On the other hand, if we get identified with and hijacked by and sucked into, you know, our anger or our grievances or our resentments or our self-criticisms or our ruminations around worry, whatever that might be, if we get sucked into it and identified with it, yep those neurons are firing, you're going to start wiring that negativity into your own brain. And as you may have heard me talk about quoting scientists about the negativity bias, we have a brain that's very vulnerable to being changed for the worse by negative, harmful, painful, difficult experiences. And so that really helped our ancestors survive. But these days, it really tends to add to and create a lot of unnecessary human suffering and interpersonal conflict. That's why I think it's important to look for those opportunities to have wholesome experiences, usually because they're right under our nose. They're already happening. The mild experiences of everyday life, you know, finally making it to the bathroom. Relief is a very underrated emotion. (laughs) Uh, You know, feeling seen by others, or liked. a moment of humor, you know, like a moment, or getting lunch, which will happen in an hour or so, you know, that kind of stuff. Or recognizing some good quality in yourself. Uh, Whatever it might be, you know, those wholesome experiences are opportunities to help those neurons keep firing together and fire intensely and fire in embodied, sensate, emotional ways so that you can gradually wire those resources into your brain. So I have a lot of material about that, as you may know. Um, most of it's freely offered, uh, although you can always, you know, help Spirit Rock out here and me too by buying a book, whatever. But you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to. So much of this stuff is freely offered. right? Um, and you can be in charge yourself of the structure-building processes of your own brain from the inside out, based on the findings of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Okay. So in that context then, I want to talk about our loving nature. Because for a long, long time people have wondered, you know, what is human nature? And I think that human nature is really uh, two natures in some sense, as you'll see. So and again, I'm just kind of moving along here. All right. So evolution, what a long, strange trip it's been. That's the Grateful Dead lyric, you know, that should headline my slide, right? Uh, life 's been around around four plus billion years or probably life 's been around around three and a half billion years. The Earth around four and a half billion. Uh, the universe is about thirteen point seven ish give or take uh, million, a billion years old. Um, the nervous system arose around six hundred million years ago when the first multicelled creatures had grown complicated enough that their sensory and motor systems needed to communicate with each other. Mammals then arose. 200 million years ago, primates 40 or so million years ago, tool manufacturing ancestors 2.5 million years ago who could manufacture stone tools with brains a third our size. The brain has tripled in volume over just the last several million years. Genetically modern um, human beings roughly 150,000 years ago. Uh, biological evolution does continue but it's a lot slower than uh, cultural evolution. Nonetheless, just out of curiosity, how many of you have blue, green, or hazel eyes? Come on, don't be shy, blue, green. You're mutants, all of you. You are mutants. I'm old school. Nobody had blue eyes, at least you passed on genes, till roughly someone was born around 5,000 or so years ago in what is now modern day, roughly, Denmark. Modern genetic studies show. Someone was born then with blue eyes who became very popular. with descendants who became very popular themselves. So biological evolution does continue, right? But it's a lot slower than cultural evolution. So we have inside us today, you know, in terms of, if you will, the three floors of the house of the brain, the brainstem, subcortex, and cortex, loosely associated with the reptilian, mammalian, and primate-human stages of evolution. Um, We have within us today the solutions to very tough, harsh life and death survival problems. Then ancient worms, crabs, frogs, lizards, rats. I have a lot of affinity for our early mammalian ancestors. These little rat-like creatures and you know, who outlived the dinosaurs, you know. And then you know the hominids, monkeys, early cave men and women, Stone Age people, et cetera, et cetera Solutions that they had to develop are wired into our brain today. So I myself feel a real affinity for the kind of inner lizard, mouse, and monkey that's in my head at least, you know, and maybe inside your head as well. Okay? So what can we do about all this? How can we understand it? I want to give you a little bit of an example of this from a study that I think is culturally relevant, was done in Japan. These were um, students, males, who are coming into an elite uh, you know, college environment. And the way the study worked is that they were told in the beginning of their entry into college while being in an MRI, being scanned, that <coughs> there were other people in their college they hadn't met yet who were much smarter than them, <laughs> much smarter, much more successful, much more likely to do well in their career, much more likely to be socially successful. How do you feel? They were asked lousy, inadequate, social pain, less than, and simultaneously, physical pain networks in their brain lit up. So illustrating two points here. Point one, that mental activity entails neural activity. And two, more recent, more sophisticated, uh, psychological uh, functions such as social pain, feeling inadequate or ashamed or worried about that um, are built upon more ancient systems and structures. Then in the second phase of this study, which I'm just kind of gliding through quickly here, in the second phase, a week or two or three later, they were told, oh by the way, this rival of yours who's so superior to you, guess what, crashed and burned. Humiliating downfall, caught with the dean's daughter, hand in the cookie jar, whatever. How do you feel now? Great! Schadenfreude, right? Pleasure at the pain of others, the opposite. I joke with my wife that one of the words for for loving kindness, traditional word is metta. I talk about anti metta, anti matter, you know? Like, you know, uh. well, anyway, that's what they were feeling. And so they experienced social pleasure which also is built upon activations of more ancient physical pleasure systems in the brain. Okay, so I'm just using this study not so much to talk about the power of envy, which is a very underrated emotion in terms of its impact, but to draw the larger point that mental activity entails neural activity, and more recent functions draw upon more ancient systems. Okay? So in that context, then, uh, there's what scientists call the social brain theory. And this is the idea that a primary driver, if not the primary driver of the evolution of the brain tripling in volume over the last several million years were the so-called reproductive advantages, the survival benefits, passing on genes that pass on genes, of social abilities of various kinds, of love, broadly defined. For example, if you think about the contrast between reptiles and fish and mammals and birds, Mammals and birds have bigger brains, particularly bigger cortex, the outer shell of the brain, where kind of the main action is for information processing. Uh, Reptile, pardon me, mammals and birds have bigger brains in proportion to body weight than reptiles and fish do. What do birds and mammals do that reptiles and fish don't do? Migrate. They may migrate, but they raise their young, and they often pair bond as well. You know, if you're just some kind of like, lizard and get it together and have some babies and wander on, you don't have to be that smart. You're a squirrel, you're working it out, you got the kids. Who's going to go get the nuts? Who's going to watch the babies? you got to get your act together. And by the way, it may be a comfort to some that monogamous species in proportion to body weight have the biggest brains, because monogamy is not that common in the wild. So anyway, um, that part. And then primate species, or many dozen primate species, Uh, The ones that are more sociable, they have larger grooming bands or groups, if you will. Uh, They're more complex social relationships. Uh, They have bigger brains in proportion to cortex, right? And then we have the evolution of hunter-gatherer bands, you know? Bands that were better at cooperating internally and understanding each other and, and being more attached to children and forming pair bonds between mates to take care of children. Um, and also to form that village it takes to raise a child, those sorts of bands were also more successful in passing on their genes. It's interesting that our nearest uh, biological relatives, the chimpanzees, both the, I forget the exact term, the typical chimpanzee as well as the bonobo, um, the brain of an adult chimpanzee is twice the volume of the brain of a newborn chimpanzee. The brain of an adult human is about four times the volume of an infant, a newborn human. Right. So as the brain uh, needed to take those years to really mature physically, that created the longest childhood of any species on the planet. During that long period of dependency, you know, parents, and, which enabled um, uh, our species to really take advantage of this physically larger and larger brain during that long period of dependency uh, we needed to tune into those kids better and they needed to tune into care- to caregivers and during that period when the mother was carrying that child around she too was very very dependent and that led to the need for more pair bonding right? which then also expanded further into as I said the village it takes to raise a child so you can see the ways in which the evolution of the brain, uh, the physical evolution of it, has driven the evolution of social life and the ways in which our social life has enabled us to have you know, this big, big brain. Right. Okay. So as, Where's my clicker? So as Darwin put it some years ago, all sentient beings develop through natural selection in such a way that pleasant sensations serve as their guide. And especially, he's now talking about the social species and especially the pleasure derived from sociability and loving our families in any kind of form that's real for a particular animal species. So some pictures here. You just hear that sound and you go, okay, we're a very social species, right? So, you know, there's a lot of bonding in the animal kingdom, not just in mammals, you know. Uh, There are species of fish where the fathers really take care of the the baby fish. Um, The cephalopods, the octopi, if you will, um, are, uh, you know, really quite relational, including capacities for empathy uh, and so on. So, to tell the story then a little bit in a number of pictures, This is uh, obviously a male lion. Yes, in the animal kingdom, there's some action between fathers and infants, fathers and children, but where most of the action is, in most animal species, is between mothers and their young. We have a gorilla. Notice, by the way, that this baby gorilla can hold on to his or her mother. Humans can't do that when they're so young. We have to carry those kids along. You know? um, yeah. okay. And then we have humans, mothers and children, different ages. And by the way, as I move through these slides, I encourage you to just allow this to be an opening of the heart and see what happens inside you as you let these images land. Okay. And we have older mothers and children. Then, as I said, to really enable and support this mother-child bond during the long period of human childhood, we needed to develop a quality of pair bonding that is also very, very intense. Many kinds of pair bonding, right, across different ages, different kinds of couples. Lesbian couple. I believe these guys were the first to get married in San Francisco, and my background is fairly Scottish, so go the kilt. <laughs> and then, of course, we have fathers. You know, my own background, uh, a lot academically, is in developmental psychology. My dissertation was on fifteen-month-olds, and so. Uh, One of the findings there is that fathers can be absolutely just as good caregivers as mothers, and children can form attachment bonds that are are just as strong. So we have fathers and children, again, of all ages. Obviously, there's a genetic resemblance here. Check out the noses. (laughs) And then, of course, we have families coming together, families of different forms, different types. You know, it's it's been said that um, in America today, the traditional so-called nuclear family, man, woman, and child, is um, less than 50% of all the families in America. Different kinds of structures, different kinds of families. We have extended families. This is from some reunion in, I think, Nebraska. I just love imagining how bored those kids are. <laughs> in <that good> <laughs> Families around the world. And then, of course, we have bonds of love, bonds of compassion, um, loving kindness, care and concern, altruism that extend beyond the family. You know, Albert Schweitzer, the great humanitarian no longer alive, he writes here, if there is anything I have learned about people, it is that there is a deeper spirit of altruism than is ever evident. Just as the rivers we see are minor compared to the underground streams, so too the idealism that is visible is minor compared to what people carry in their hearts, unreleased or scarcely released, including in your own heart as well. He says, humankind is waiting and longing for those who can accomplish the task of untying what is knotted and bringing these underground waters to the surface. Before I go on, I just want to really emphasize something that I think is a deeply important practice. It's to recognize that you're a good person. It's one of the last taboos, isn't it? We can recognize that others are good people. We... Go away, go away. <laughs> anyway, we can recognize that uh, others are good people who are not perfect people. They have their foibles, you know, their cranky pants, whatever, right? But they're a good person. You know, we can even see that other people can see that about us. They regard us as a basically good person. You know, good person, good guy, good gal, good good person. But can we see that about ourselves? Can we recognize our own goodness, our own good intentions, perfectly expressed? with some lapses? Do we know that, that longing in us for the good? Do we, can we feel that kind of radiance in us? Can we track that layer that starts feeling increasingly impersonal, even beyond gender, way deep down inside, that just is loving and benevolent unconditionally? Can you be a stand for that knowing inside yourself and to yourself? And can you be a stand for that knowing to other people? to really recognize, to know that you're a good person. I just think that's a very important experience to make room for, to build out a slot in the motherboard, if you will, of the mind-brain system so you have access to that experience. And interestingly, as we open to and deepen in that sense of being a basically good person, we find that we're able to see others as basically good people increasingly. Even if we disagree with them, even if they're on the other side of the political divide, even if they're an adversary in some sense, we can see that deep down over there, they're a basically good person. And that helps us be more skillful with them as well. So I think registering, you know, that, yeah, I am a good person, not perfect, not a saint, in progress, basically a good person, is a very, very important, very, very important thing to cultivate inside. And Albert Schweitzer is speaking to that here. So there are many examples of altruism. I think this is Habitat for Humanity, building a house for people that you'll probably never see. And this kind of um, um, altruism crosses the lines of species. We have here, I believe that's a baby porcupine. And then I'll tell you a little story. You may know it already. Uh, Apparently off the coast of San Francisco, the Farallon Islands, roughly 20 miles out, uh, a um, scuba diver spotted a large humpback whale, I think a humpback whale, that had gotten tangled up in fishing lines of various kinds and was drowning because the whale couldn't stay afloat or swim and so forth. And so the uh, scuba diver radioed back. A marine mammal center then got a team of people to go out to help the whale who then spent hours at great risk to their own lives literally cutting the lines off of the whale you know who if, if the whale panicked at any moment started thrashing around could completely kill them and then when they were done true story apparently the whale jumped for joy leapt around and then went to each individual diver and made some kind of contact with him or her And this is a photograph of one of those little moments. really, Really touching, huh? Really touching. So, I'd like to use these images and what they might have evoked in you to do a brief practice here. With your eyes open or closed, kind of along the lines of what I was saying about the importance of recognizing truth You know, the truth is what sets us free. It's the foundation of science. It's the foundation of of moral life. It's the foundation of spiritual life. In Buddhism, the word, you know, the word for truth is dharma. It's the dharma that sets us free. Can you let yourself recognize the dharma, the truth in yourself of your own warm-heartedness right now? Let's take a few moments to kind of be with the experience